0: What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush, and normally I'd be joined by my fantastic co-host, Connor Cornelius, but he is out for this week, but that's okay. We've still got lots to talk about, plenty of uh, cinema to dive into. Uh, We do have a fantastic guest Today, that we are so excited to be talking to. Uh, as you know, we like to talk to a lot of filmmakers and uh, people who work in the film industry, but we also like to look at it from a different perspective. We like to get the critic's perspective. Now, they say everyone's a critic nowadays. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true because it takes a lot of hard work to be a critic. You got to watch a lot of movies and you really got to have a gift of speaking about movies, which is a lot harder than it seems. Sure, we have a lot of opinions on things. We loved it. We hated it and we throw it up on Twitter, but it takes a very special individual to put it into such fantastic language that can really delve into what a movie is all about and whether or not at the end of the day, you want to see it so today we are joined by matt Cipolla. he is a writer and film critic and he has written for film monthly he's worked with kino lorber and he recently went to the con film festival as part of the three days in con program uh please welcome to the program matt thank you so much for joining us Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I want to start off with some really general stuff, because when it comes to criticism, uh, like I said, everybody wants to be a critic, everybody wants to have an opinion, but it's tough to get that correct formula of being a, you know, a cultural commentator, but also giving legitimate recommendations to people that they might find useful. So what brought you to the profession of being a critic?
1: It, honest, I, it was not something I planned at all, um, which is funny because when I talk to other people, that's sort of the same gist I get from them as well. Um, it, I mean, I just given the time I happened to grow up, I happened to get a Twitter when I was like shy of 13. Um, I had thoughts on things, I would throw them up, but they wouldn't fit within 140 characters. So I moved to a Tumblr blog and. Um, while I was still in high school, I started writing out reviews, um, and then I just kept doing that. And then it got to a point where I kind of had to, and it was sort of like a, an internal obligation that I just had to do it before I did anything else. Um, and I just kept doing it. Um, there was a professor I had at Columbia College Chicago last year who saw the, the regular, like, the consistency with which I wrote. And so she redirected me over to Film Monthly and then I kept doing that. Um, it all just sort of happened, really. Um, it wasn't really until I was thoroughly, like I was into it that, that I realized that it was all along, it was my passion. <laughs> well,
0: that's an interesting way to realize your passion. You know, you just kind of start doing it for fun and to, like be out of genuine interest. And then all of a sudden, when you're already a critic, you're like, oh, wait, I'm a critic now. This is what I do. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was funny cause I was talking to, um, I did a semester in LA. Um, I just finished up school. Yay. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was funny. I was doing a semester in LA and I was talking to Claudia Flea who I took class with and she was saying, we like, there were some other people in the room and she was talking, well, when was one of the time that you realized you had that aha moment of what you're doing is what you want to do. And I realized it was about four years ago. Um, It was around the time when Under the Skin came out, and I saw it eight times in its initial release. Wow. Just because I wanted to keep writing an analysis on it. I just wanted to dissect it um, from a thematic perspective. And then when I couldn't think of anything else that was thematic, I started to fall into the trap of putting movies together like a puzzle, which I don't really enjoy doing, but I just had to keep writing about something. Um, And that was just all I wanted to do, really.
0: So what is it about film and maybe we can relate it to under the skin specifically, since it had such an impact on you, was it about writing about film cinema, whatever you want to call it, that really sparks your imagination and gets those, you know, editorial juices flowing in you.
1: Well, I mean, the way I always think about it is that cinema just as an art form is more of a 50, a 50 workload and 50% is, the filmmakers and then 50% of the audiences. And I think that might have to do with part of the reason that I gravitate more towards films with a heightened ambiguity because they, generally speaking, have, they, they spark that interest more often um, in trusting the audience, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and so when you have uh, the first half of the equation, which is essentially just um, the filmmakers putting their work up on the screen, um, there's something sort of, impressive and projective about uh, an audience member seeing that and then projecting a combination of their own worldview, their upbringing, their philosophies onto that. Um, and then it kind of makes, you know, criticism unto itself its own little art form. And I think it's really fascinating to just be able to read other people's analyses of other films, especially if they're just wildly varying because um, you get a lot of insight as to those people Um in terms of who they are, what they've been through, et cetera.
0: That seems to be one of the central difficulties of criticism is that you are much, you know, when you're reading a critic, they are also, although they do have a forum or a platform to give their impressions or give their opinions on something, they are ultimately just the same as anyone else in terms of being an audience member who, as you said, bring their own Uh, projections to the film bring their own psychology their own experiences and uh, that's what shapes their opinion of the film is do you do you try to lean into that idea of this is my interpretation this is how I see the film you may see it differently or do you try to go more general somewhere where it's like very recommendation like I you know you try to see it from other people's perspective
1: yeah, I mean, every once in a while when I'm writing a review, I might throw in something that's like, well, other people may see it elsewhere or, or from a different perspective, but that's sort of inherent to writing a review. I mean, film is not in- inherently subjective, and I've never really enjoyed the idea of, oh, if you're a critic, you have to look at it entirely objectively because I think that's cold and reductive, and it kind of discounts everything that you as a person bring to the film itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I mean, I've never really fallen into the trap of when you write about a film, you have to um, basically just write about what they wanted. Um, you also have to write about its large, like its impact or its context within a larger scope, whether it's, it's timelessness or its timeliness. Um, but I think one of the major things that people have to realize is that there's such a difference between actually um, – critiquing the movie that they made and critiquing the movie that you wanted them to make or expected them to make. Mm -hmm. And I think therein lies um, a crucial difference between a lot of writers. I mean, I was just talking to someone yesterday about Hereditary. Right. And um, they didn't like it. I loved it. um, But what I noticed throughout the conversation was a lot of it was it could have been a lot scarier. And I was like, yeah, but it was, it's a family drama. The, The writer director, Ari Aster, Saw Cries and Whispers, Ordinary People. It was It's domestic drama in the guise of a horror film. It's not really a horror film. I would say it definitely is, but a lot of people are throwing that defense around. Um, so when it's not balls-to-the-wall, nutty, that's why it's holding back. And he's like, yeah, but I didn't want that. I'm like, okay, well, that's what you wanted.
0: <laughs> and that's, that's something that I think is really... Maybe maybe it's just because of, um, you know, my own age, and I don't know what criticism was really like, you know, maybe 30 years ago, apart from what I can read in old um, reviews in, like, you know, the from the New York Times or, you know, some of the archives from Roger Ebert, but it seems very specific to now that people are very much wanting, you know, there's kind of an audience... Uh, I don't know if I want to call it revolution, but this idea that the audience is now the supreme... author in a sense Um, the filmmaker is there but they are there to deliver a product Uh, we've seen this a lot with the reactions to star wars the last jedi as you mentioned hereditary as well which had a very divisive sort of critic audience reaction um, result where critics were lauding this as one of the scariest films ever made or at least one of the scariest films made in the last like 10 to 15 years but the audiences gave it a cinema score of about d plus which is pretty abysmal you know we're getting into darren aronofsky's mother territory with that which notoriously gained the cinema score of f people hated it yeah but critics generally well i mean critics were even divided themselves but it 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 was a lot more favorable in the critics eyes why do you think that the audience feels this sense of i'll call it entitlement they they want the movie that's in their head why are we getting to this point
1: exactly it i mean i mean because i think a lot of that is Especially within the last twenty years, we've reached such this exponential um, fast forward in terms of the amount of information that we can get within a thirty second uh, span. And if you, this sounds incredibly cynical and pretentious, but that's who I am. Um, (laughs) It's basically there's this idea of um, you know if I can get. Uh, like, every all the information I can get within 30 seconds is all the information that there is. Um, and so if, if it's completely out of left field, then it's just wrong. Or if it's not what I was expecting, then it's not what was intended. Um, and then there are a lot of people who, like, you know, in a general and, like, very understandable sense, you know, you have a lot of casual moviegoers who aren't completely um, in tune to just the machine that churns out movies after they're in the can. And once you have something, I mean, I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago and they were basically saying that, yeah, the Paramount people, when you were talking about Mother, um, they didn't see the movie until about two weeks before it came out. Um, the trailer editors, I, there was someone around the around the pipeline. And so they weren't totally sure how to market it. They just sort of had an idea of how shit it was um, and so there was it's just a communication breakdown all around. Um that movie had a lot of confounding variables in terms of the audience that saw it. Mm-hmm. That was that's fun to talk about.
0: Yeah, and uh the, the marketing aspect of it, I've always I've found that a little bit interesting because there's you know, a recent sort of uh I don't know, disconnect with that audience expectation versus what the studio wants the movie to come off as. As you mentioned, Mother, um, maybe a little bit of Hereditary. One of the more uh, egregious examples, I would say, was probably It Comes at Night, distributed by 824. I talked to a lot of people who said, well, that was a cool movie, but Where what was the what was the monster What was the was it a horror movie Was it this weird sexual You know adolescence coming Of age thing in the post apocalypse and the uh the marketing really sold it as um something almost akin to the thing you know we thought we were going to see uh you know a monster of some sort something more typical and i found it to be really interesting you know i found there to be a sort of salient point with the title it comes at night but you never really see it so what is it and that gave me a guiding principle to watch this movie or at least a lens through which to watch this movie but so many people were disappointed because they wanted monster movie, what they got something very different.
1: Yeah. I really liked the movie as well. And I mean, that's also something that age 24, whatever, um, every once in blue moon where they do release something on day one in wide release, it does get that reaction when there was the witch, mm-hmm. um, there was free fire, which came and went in like two weeks. Um, there was, um, it comes a night and there was hereditary. All these movies were sold um, in a slightly off-kilter to what they were relative to the film itself. Mm-hmm. And then people were like, hold oh, that?
0: Yeah, I mean, even for me going into Free Fire, luckily, you know, being... being two, I would say the two of us are people that really keep up with, like, a movie prior to the marketing like we we have a good idea of what it's actually going to be like and then when we see the marketing, we already have the disconnect uh whereas yeah. most people are going to get the disconnect later when they actually see the finished product um yeah so it's I,
1: also like i if i if i do see marketing it's mostly by happenstance it's i don't go seeking out trailers right um unless it's something i saw at a festival and i'm like Ooh, how are they marketing this in retrospect because i've already seen it so i don't care or um uh the idea of just going to a movie and they happen to play it. I'm like, okay, well, I saw the trailer, but I'm not gonna, you know, rewatch trailers over and
0: over. Yeah, you're not part. you're not refreshing Twitter to see if there's a you know finally a new trailer for, I don't know the the next Marvel movie. Like, it's really not that interesting. Like, you're gonna you're gonna take the movie at face value. You're gonna see that movie and take it as its finished product, not what they're trying to sell it to you as.
1: Yeah, and I mean, on top of that, you have to look at trailer trailer editing as its own art form unto itself, and mm-hmm. I, there are trailers that I go back and I just watch the trailer because I think it's super well cut. Yeah. Like, the trailer for Mother, the trailer for Thoroughbreds, whoever edited that trailer for Ocean 8 is super talented. Oh, for sure. Like, entirely independent from the movie themselves, I'm like, these are just really nice two-and-a-half-minute works of art that I like watching.
0: Yeah, the art of the trailer. I think there's uh, maybe maybe that's something you could get yourself into is trailer criticism. Let's break down the yeah. the cinema of trailers. I really like that. Yeah,
1: it's so fascinating though. There's this whole culture of like you go on YouTube and you'll see people do shot by shot analyses of trailers. And oh my god! Like a 20, it's like a 22 minute video, <laughs> and it's like a it's like borderline Rob Eager level dissection.
0: It's it's scary. I mean, you have these massive trailer reaction videos where it's either people that um I don't know, maybe it's a thirst for content, but like they're they take the Infinity War trailer, per, you know, for example, and they're just like, "Okay, I think this is really hinting at what's going to happen to Captain America and this is actually obviously a reference to." And then you have like fanboys and uh fan people, let's say, and they're watching these trailers and it's just 20 minutes of them crying. Yeah it's It's a very strange world uh, I want to ask you about the effect of di- digital media and this kind of, and social media at large on criticism um, We've seen its effects on you know regular news and things like that the way that uh, news gets distilled through the lens of social media and I've noticed a little bit of a similar trend in criticism uh I think those those forms such as uh rotten tomatoes or metacritic things like that have given this weird kind of uh, magnifying glass that takes big ideas and pushes them through a prism to something more digestible for the audience more more or less amounting to it was good or it was terrible and yep. i was curious to get your thoughts on whether or not we can still have nuance or more of a discussion when we have these kind of shorthands for evaluating a movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because I remember the first time I heard about Rotten Tomatoes and about nine years ago, because my dad told me about how great its score was, or like the score for up was on Rotten Tomatoes. And I was like, the hell is this? (laughs) And, um, then I just sort of, got attuned to it and it's something I checked regularly and then I sort of fell out of it within the last two years or so. Um, it's a fascinating idea by theory and I do check it often to see where did it fall. Um, but the idea of, I mean, the, it, the whole binary concept of fresh brought in this pretty problematic. And um, I mean, the main thing is, I don't think it's necessarily their fault. It's just a lot of ways that people have come to perceive it and how they assume, um, what the percentage means. I mean, cause you know, it's, you know, every single person gives something seven out of 10, that's a hundred percent. It's just percent of positive reviews. Right. Um, and so that's, that's one of the reasons I also sometimes look at Metacritic. Um, they actually will weigh something out of a hundred, mm-hmm. um, Although one thing I don't like that Metacritic does is that they weight the the impact of certain critics' scores, um, so they sort of they give seniority to certain critics and they'll have more of an impact on the overall mm-hmm. um, meter. Um, but I don't know. I I've kind of also turned away from the more traditional aggregate scores, and I like looking at user scores on things like Letterboxd.
0: Yeah. Um, Letterboxd well, is, so really, really, Letterbox is a really interesting platform that I've only discovered fairly recently. And I mean, it's it's akin to something like a, you know, say Goodreads, which is a pretty popular app for books, um, yeah. or maybe like Rate Your Music when it comes to uh, music. Um, but I find the community on Letterboxd to be really fascinating. It seems to be a pretty... an overall positive place obviously with anything on the internet there's going to be a small but vocal group of people that are just going to i don't know make make things crappy for everyone else but i I really seem to uh find a lot of merit in this website as a forum so tell me a little bit about how you use letterboxd
1: yeah um i take letterboxd far too seriously um Yeah, I, I found out about it a little over three years ago and I retroactively, um, I, I started saving all of my ticket stubs um, on January 1st, 2010, so I have all of those in my possession, so I retroactively logged all of the movies since then, um, um, but it's, yeah, I'll, whenever I see something in a theater, only in a theater, um, I will log it onto my diary. Um, I'll rank a yearly, like all the releases from a given year from best to worst, all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll plug my reviews with like a, a blurb and then a link to it. But I, I just think it's fascinating to look at how different people use it. Uh, mostly in terms of it's there are people who will write full on actual reviews, which I really enjoy. And then there are also people who will just write kind of like snappy one-liners, which I also enjoy cause they're funny. Right. Um, and it's like no one's obliged to write an entire review on a social networking site. It's not that serious. Um, and then sometimes you'll get people who just sort of shit posts and you're like, well, it's the internet. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, it, I do think it really highlights this sort of, you know, that, that film bubble that's it's sort of in a good way, in a bad way, it's like film Twitter. Um, but under a microscope, uh, warts and all, um, but I do definitely enjoy it. I, it. It's something that's more restricted in terms of, you know, I don't come across more um, people that I don't know who they are because it's not like Twitter where it shows you what tweets are possible at the time when you open the app, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but I think it's a really interesting tool and I use it a lot.
0: Yeah, especially v- being a critic, it can definitely be a way to um, get your views out there. As you mentioned, you know, you, put a piece of the review and then plug the rest of it, giving people a chance to uh, find the rest of the writing. And it seems to me that people on Letterbox do have an appreciation for... And I've, obviously I'm generalizing a little bit, but uh they do just seem to have an appreciation for film as a as a big discussion piece and things it's it's very amorphous, and people can really argue and discuss, but it doesn't come off as too hateful most of the time
1: yeah i mean you'll you'll get that that's just say love you, but I mm-hmm. mean for the most part it's There is something to be said about, I think, that a lot of the, like, when I think about it, the largest, the two largest and most common accounts that I come across, um, one of them is just a girl named Lucy. I think her name is just Lucy, and she posts just, like, snappy one-liners, and I like her because she's funny. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is David Ehrlich, and they're basically just emblematic of those two schools of thought, which is, I'm going to have fun with this, or, like, I'm going to post a whole thing and link to it from an analytical perspective. And both of those are totally valid. Like, again, it's a social media platform, is it not the Chicago Tribune?
0: Right, right. Um, I want to jump into your time at the, film the Con Film Festival. Con Film Festival, one of the biggest film festivals in the whole world, super well-respected, a lot of great stuff. And you got a chance to go through this this program or this this uh, thing called Three Days in Con. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so um, I was I saw a tweet from Eric Cohn from IndieWire, um, and he he tweeted this thing. This initiative, and it's the first time they've ever done it. Uh, it's just called Three Days in, in Can or Con, um, and it was essentially a thing for anyone eighteen to twenty eight. They could apply. Um, so I, I wrote a cover letter I sent it in um, you had to send a scan of your passport or some sort of legal documentation to prove that you can actually go mm-hmm. um, and then uh, I sent that in and then I woke up the next morning about eighteen hours later and I got an acceptance letter and uh started crying so that was fun <laughs> um and then so uh that was it was really good timing uh I shipped myself off uh. A day after graduation, um, it was for the last three days of the festival. I was in the town proper for about five days, but the, the, the program covered the last three days of the festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was able to see 10 different movies in three days, um, a lot of reviewing, a lot of writing drafts on my phone um, while waiting in line for other movies. The True Critic um, experience. A lot, having, yeah, a lot of not really eating full meals, but just having a banana and a shot of espresso in between movies it was great um tell it, some, t- yeah it's, it's, it's a lot the first day was sort of a shit show because I'm like I don't speak French uh-huh. um, and I just feel completely out of water here but I mean after a while you sort of lose all integrity and just go for it
0: um tell us about what describe to us I mean I've never been to the film festival many people never will go to the film festival so describe what the energy is like there oh.
1: Yeah, so every morning—well, the three mornings that I went, um, I got up at, like, 7.30. Uh, the earliest movie I went to every day was at, I think, 8.45 in the morning. Um, so, uh, essentially, there's the Palais, which is, if I'm not mistaken, seven or eight screens exist, uh, and they, that's what they'll show their films on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the Grand Le Mare, which is the, the, the flagship theater, which everyone— when they have a gala screening in the evening, everyone's in, you know— uh, tuxedos, women have to wear heels. It's kind of weird. Um, but uh, you'll have to get an invitation for those showings if you can't. Um, there are sometimes people that you'll see just sort of standing around with cardboard signs that have... They're basically saying, like, if you have a ticket, please give it to me for this movie. Um, <laughs> there's always a guy running, running up and down the line trying to sell you newspapers. And um, It's, there's a lot going on. There's a constant swarm of beeping because they scan everyone's badges whenever they basically go anywhere. Um, It's, it's a lot. It's super fun though. Um, Especially in the event that you do get to just sort of watch any sort of, of, like a premiere of a film. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to see Copper Now. Um, That was a movie that was surprisingly polarizing. um, But that was, uh, that was a movie where I got to see everyone just sort of like do their thing on the red right carpet. I
0: got like a hundred feet away from Cape Lanchette, so that's wow. my peak. Yeah, you could put that putting that in the memoir. Yeah, totally. Um, so what were some of the films that you got to see over at the film festival over at uh over at Cannes?
1: Okay, uh, so I saw a movie called Dog Man, which is pretty good. It's from the director of uh, Tale of Tales, which I thought was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Whitney, uh, the Whitney Houston documentary. Um, this is okay. That comes out um, in Chicago uh, this coming Friday from when we're recording it. So July 7th, I believe, mm-hmm. July 6th or 7th, um, this uh Queer slasher called Knife and Heart, which I wanted to like a lot more. It was like this pastiche of Argento and Refn and cinema parody. So it's a lot of stuff It doesn't really work. Um, but it had a, a knife shaped like a dildo that people were murdered with. So that was cool. Um, <laughs> you don't
0: see, you don't see that in a lot of movies.
1: Yeah, no, it's so European. Um, <laughs> the uh, I saw End of the Silver Lake, which is pretty good. Um, I was it was. Because I was able to, I, it's, for a second, I was thinking, "Do I want to see this?" Because it comes out in a month, yeah. And then A twenty four delayed it by six months. I'm like, "Thank God I saw that."
0: Yeah, good um, thing you got that one. In. I'm curious
1: to see. It's there's there have been like flutterings of are they going to recut it? Because the movie is two hours and twenty minutes, and oh wow, it's it's pretty out there at times. Like, there's a lot of David Lynch, there's a lot of Michael Powell. There's sort of like a everything is intentionally archetypal, like played by Andrew Garfield, is meant to be a little more than the archetype that Hollywood markets to, and that he's a straight white male is pretty entitled. Okay. Um, it doesn't. When it works, it's great. It doesn't always work. I liked it overall. I'm curious to see what they're going to do with it. Assuming they do do something else with it in the next coming months, um, I hope they don't mess it up.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and that's from that's but from I, the director of uh, It Follows. Is that correct? Yeah, David Robert Mitchell. He, interesting. Uh, he follows also at Cannes. Very cool. Yeah, because I, I that was I liked It Follows, and I think um, It Follows definitely kicked off a lot of think pieces, or at least um, a lot of ideas about is this the new wave of horror? Is this what we're going to do now? So it's interesting to see him uh, continuing. Um, although this it's not particularly horror, right? It's, it's kind of like a mystery sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's like a wacky it has like touches of noir like neo-noir mm-hmm. it has touches of it reminded me a lot i don't without spoiling anything there are some aspects of it that reminded me of stuff you'd see from michael powell and just sort of this absurdist you know nudge nudge um out like gleefully out there humor mm-hmm. um it's it's Winding, Paul Thomas Anderson, Thomas Pynchon, sort of
0: nuttiness. Okay, I like that. Is it any any resemblance to um, something like? Oh goodness, I can't even remember the title of that. Uh, the title of that. P.T. Anderson, Inherent Vice, is it something akin to that?
1: Um, yeah, I could I could see that. I mean, the character is pretty much always stone. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, I didn't necessarily like Inherent Vice um uh-huh. i it was okay uh i like this more um but i could definitely see that especially with the, the sort of just wavering meandering kind of overlong thomas pinching quality to it
0: okay i see that and um do you uh, do you have any plans to get back into can is there any any chance that you're going to get to go uh next year oh god
1: i i, I hope so i wish i but love to be able to do this again. Um, It was super fun. Um, A lot of part of it was just the sheer energy of it. Part of it was just the glamour and also being able to see movies not knowing anything about them.
0: that's that's the new spike lee yeah super super fun very exciting very very exciting i mean there were so many uh so many films that you know you make a dream list of the year it's like oh man i really wish i could see this before everyone else so i'm glad that you as a you got a chance to go over there see some of these movies before the rest of the public sees them um I, I wanted to hop over to your letterbox, in fact, and uh, take a look at a little bit of some of your favorite movies of 2018 so far. Um, a lot of these are also, I'm looking at the list right now, and a lot of these are also on my list. Uh, a lot. We've. How do you think 2018 has been as a film year so far?
1: Um, Surprisingly audacious. I am very happy with what I've seen so far. I mean, it's, Especially if you compare it to something like at this point, there's definitely been more movies that I've loved. If you look at this, like right now, it's June 30th as we record this. We are at Mm -hmm. the halfway point. Um, If you were to take this halfway point and place it into the context of 2017 or especially 2016, Mm -hmm. at this point, we didn't have nearly as many great movies as we have now. Um, I'm, I'm impressed. I hope it keeps up.
0: Yeah, I'm, I've been so. It's, and it's such a weird dichotomy because, on one hand, we've seen, I feel like, a lot of really interesting, and as you said, audacious. kind of art house i guess to to put a label on it indie whatever seen a lot of smaller movies that have really impressed a lot of people um even even on a larger scale like something like hereditary which performed so well compared to what i would have ever expected for an a24 movie uh with such a wide release but meanwhile we're seeing some of the biggest franchises Uh, just totally steamroll the box office, I mean, with the release of stuff like Black Panther and Avengers and even more recently Jurassic World. Uh, I read in Deadline that the North American box office, in fact, reached six billion faster than it ever had before. Yeah, yeah. So I, I it's a strange kind of split where it's just like there's a lot of movies I see that are bigger, and I'm just like, oh god, I hate this. Like I hated Jurassic World too. I I couldn't stand it. I walked out with about 20 minutes left. I was like, oh, I'm not gonna do this anymore. But in the meantime we get things like your number one on this list eighth grade from the kind of i guess millennial uh <laughs> millennial comedian bo burnham which uh i got the opportunity to see that at the chicago critics film festival and i was in love i was so in love yeah, with this movie yeah that well there you go it's um I, I put myself right in the front front row because I just one I had to be there for the Q&A I find Bo Burnham to be a really interesting figure but uh, yeah. tell me your tell me your thoughts on this movie because it was um, for me something so surprisingly honest and um I don't know, just emotionally affecting. I I can't wait to see it again so I can try to watch it through a different lens from just that first raw viewing, but give me, give me some of your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that it it's just so refreshing to portray early adolescence as the total shit show that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's it's just throughout there's such a deep empathy uh or our protagonist, Kayla. And what I love about it is that that empathy, empathy comes through just the cringiest of cringe humor. It's, mm-hmm. My face was contorting. Um, <laughs> it's what I, It manages to strike this really fine balance between um, being emotionally intimate in the moment and thinking that, okay, this is, like, as you're living these moments, you're like, okay, this is just the world, this is life. Um, and also all the while portraying it with just enough dissonance that you're able to look at it from like a retrospective perspective, but um, uh, perspective as an adult Mm -hmm. um, and sort of laugh with her struggle, but it's never cruel. I mean, it's not, I love welcome to the dollhouse. It's not welcome to the dollhouse. It's not Todd allowance in that, you know, cruelty is empathy, but there's definitely such a, there's such consistency to it. There's a timelessness to it and just all the struggles. There's there's something very current about how they touch on things with, like social media and YouTube and Snapchat, but they never overdo it. And if they do overdo it, it's intentionally so. It's just, you know, adults and teachers trying their best to connect with children is just not working. Um, and I also think it's, especially for a directorial debut, There's a surprisingly strong grasp on cinema as a language. You know, it moves really well. It's very well edited. Uh, A lot of use of superimpositions. Um, There's sort of a brisk dreaminess to everything that exists within the digital hemisphere and how that bleeds over into her actual world. Um, I've in just all the while. It's just hilarious and cringy and sweet. And I cried just writing my review.
0: Oh, (laughs) Well, it's it's it is one of those movies. Um, you do really connect with the main character so much, even though it might be so outside of your experience. And um, in that Q and A that we that we saw, Bo even touched on that. He's like he grew up in a totally different time. Um, not you know he grew up identifying. He's a man, identifies as a man and um, just has no real like. You know, personal context for specifics about uh, Kayla's experience in this movie, specifically relating to a lot of technology aspects. But what I think he picked up on and I think a lot of people also picked up on was his ability to find the timeless moments of that, the timeless emotions that can transcend those, you know, uh, details of being social media and uh, technology obsessed and being an, an eighth grader in 2018. I think that's really the biggest credit of the film is being able to transcend all those sorts of things to give you something that you can really think about for a long time and um, definitely watch again. I am very, very excited to see it again.
1: Yeah, it comes out, I believe, it in Chicago July 20th. I believe that's what it's mm-hmm. slated for.
0: Um, another one I want to touch on is your number three pick, Annihilation, uh, which was a movie yeah. that it it was you know I was excited for it, very excited for it, big fan of uh, Ex Machina, directed by uh, Alex Garland, written as well by Alex Garland, and um, based on a book that. I, I think I made a big mistake, and I read the book right before I watched the movie. The book is maybe 200, 250 pages, totally blow through it, and um I read it on a plane, and then I got off the plane, and then I watched Annihilation, and... um I, I was I was impressed by a lot of the facets of it. I thought there were great performances. I thought visually it was very cool and very it felt very original. But I really almost the movie almost completely lost me once it got to the very end. Um the Oh the, no it, Spirit it totally won me over. I just I you know I don't want to I'll I'll throw out a spoiler alert here. Uh if you have not seen Annihilation, go check it out for yourself because really it's a it's fantastic that this movie got made and um I'm I was satisfied with most of it, but when it gets to the end where they're in the they're like in the hospital and they have Natalie Portman's character and they do the little Iris kind of reveal where it's like oh it's not Actually her I, I just felt like that was So predictable I was like no this is not The ending I want I may, maybe this Is a little bit of my entitlement uh, Coming from reading the book But I was like oh I really Had that stuck in my craw Because the rest of the movie felt So unexpected and so strange And then you get to that and I'm like Oh this feels c- kind of cliche In a lot of ways
1: Yeah, I didn't see it that way because I felt like a lot of it was about the chaos of the universe. Right. And that fed into the unpredictability of it for so much of it, especially in the last 20 minutes or so. It just becomes like an art piece. Yeah. Um, But when you do finally get that release of knowing who she is at the end of her journey, it was sort of like, it sort of, you know, punctuates the entire film with something that's a little more... Um, tangible yes. and it sort of act, I felt it acted complementary to everything that preceded it well, actually can... like it was oddly hopeful it was, it, was, it was oddly hopeful in a weird sort of way even though she for all intents and purposes Lena as a, as a character she didn't make it out of there as she went into the shimmer but there's a sense of closure that you know she was looking for all the while
0: yeah. And I I'd say largely largely uh I enjoyed the movie a lot. Definitely recommend it. Uh if if only for that horrifying scene with the like the bear creature, I was yeah. I was gripping the sides of my seat. I was like this is possibly uh the best like 10 minutes of 2018 so far. I was like this yeah. this is unbelievably good filmmaking and um I really really loved um, a lot of those elements of it can't wait to see what Alex Garland comes up with next because I think he's you know he's been working he's been doing film for a long time mostly in a writing capacity uh, very famous for writing 28 days later which I think was what saved the zombie movie genre from itself and brought a lot of new uh, a lot of new life into it so I'm very happy that he has uh, still got some skin in the game. Uh, I want to point out, one of I, I think reading this your review of this again had it had me laughing so hard because it, you just really communicated your distaste for this movie. Uh, very bottom of the list for 2018 is uh, Gotti, starring John Whoa. Travolta, and I I can't believe how much your writing communicated the disjointed nature of this movie and just how sloppy and just unbelievably. Um, boring. This movie was. Tell me a little bit about your experience watching watching Gotti. Uh,
1: God. Okay. Um. Yeah, this movie is a shit show. I called it the G League of gangster movies because <laughs> I felt like I was watching. It was just totally incoherent. I think it's sort of fascinating to look at as a, from a production standpoint in that it was. This is in the pipeline for seven and a half years. They cycled through. Um stars and directors. Joe Pesci, I believe, was supposed to be in it, but then he got dropped, even though he gained a lot of weight for a role, and so he mm-hmm. sued them and got really pissed. I think it was settled out of court. It was just a, a shit show, and John Travolta was saying that this was his passion project and that he was going to make it no matter what, and I'm just like, oh, come on. You, you've you got to be able to do something else with your time. Are you, seriously? <laughs> uh, it's just... I mean, it covers the the late 70s to the late aughts with no real rhyme or reason in terms of how the pacing plays out. It's so arrhythmic that I'm surprised it didn't just die of heart palpitations on the spot. (laughs) Um, The makeup is really inconsistent. Everyone hurts. It's inconsistent, but it's also... Startlingly and distractingly consistent, and then everyone looks the same age despite having lived over a quarter of a century. Just bullshit. <laughs> um, yeah, there there are multiple original songs written for the movie by the one and only Mr. Worldwide oh, Um That
0: that just that. that just saves the movie, doesn't it? Thank God I mean, that we got hey, Mr. Yeah, 305.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's um, it's amazing. I mean, there's even one scene where they, they play, they don't really have a lot of die music. In the movie, there is one scene, though, where they're all having, like, a Fourth of July party in an alleyway, and they're listening to Don't Stop the Party by Pitbull, and it's, it's within the realm of the film itself. It's not overlaid. Right. It's mixed as if they're listening to it, but it's the only time they use anachronistic music within the universe of the film. And so there are just little touches like that where I'm like, w- "Where are you going for?" Like all the like the pickup shots are mm-hmm. clearly um, just stock footage, and they're really grainy. Um, it's uh... so it's just avoid at all costs. Yeah, I mean, it's like if you're curious to see just the trash fire, I guess it'll tickle your fancy. <laughs> but I, I don't think it's bad enough to be good. It's just like it's more fascinating to read about. I mean yeah. if anything like you'll laugh when you hear the score cuz it sounds like a temp track it's like someone had like a midi keyboard in 1995 and they were like doing like a, a fan you know rescore of like uh Donkey Kong Country 3 or something
0: Oh my god <laughs> that that is that is truly I can hear it in my head right now just overlaid with a very angry and tense looking uh John Travolta
1: yeah, if you want to hear him say, I will park a bus up your ass sideways, um, <laughs> this is a movie for you.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Well, now I, I think I have to see it out of genuine curiosity. Really, that just sounds yeah, like, like, like a I'm lot gonna, of fun.
1: It's like, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a unmega it's disaster, but I can't, I don't know how to be mad about it. It's like, who cares? Who cares?
0: And you you mentioned in your review, this is directed, isn't it uh, directed by Turtle from Entourage? No, Eric. Eric. Okay.
1: Uh, yeah, Kevin wow. Connolly directed this. This is not his debut apparently. He has apparently directed some other stuff. This yeah.
0: Wow. Well there you go. Worst film of the year so far from uh Matt Cipolla is the uh it's Gotti. It's gotta it's gotta be Gotti, the worst one of the year so far. But I'm sure you know, we've got six months left. Let's uh let's see what happens. Let's see where it goes. Yeah, let's hope for something worse. Um, before we go, uh, I just wanted to pull one of my favorites. Um, I want to give people an example of your writing because it is uh, truly some of my favorite to read. When it comes to critics, you know, there's so many critics out there that you can't. I mean, you can't read them all, but there's some that you just latch onto. And uh, I think for for you, it's the the way that you write about these movies is just so relatable and um but just remarkably intelligent uh this one's coming from deadpool 2 which you can read this review on filmmonthly.com. com. uh coming it's written on uh, may 25th 2018 and i have to say this totally summed up how i felt about deadpool 2 as well um because as many as many people know who listen to the show i work in a movie theater and um we get together and watch the movies usually the day before they come out to make sure the projection is correct and uh, watching it everybody else was having a better time than I was and I was just so upset with everything I was seeing and I think uh, I'll read a little bit here from Matt uh, that sums up why I was so upset there are several ways in which a boy can become a man. Shaving for the first time, finishing high school, deciding not to shave, graduating from college, or realizing the limitations of wall-to-wall irony are all possible candidates for such a checkpoint. But for me, it was a month ago when I re-watched Deadpool. I loved it when it came out. I found it to be the freshest and most entertaining comic book movie since 2010's Kick-Ass. However, I was also a 19-year-old college sophomore when Deadpool came out. Looking back with my infinite wisdom as a 21 year old college graduate the first film was okay at best its junky quality was a blessing and a curse and while it was hypocritical from a parodical standpoint it also had a certain charm to it it was smaller and it's comparably meager 58 million dollar budget forced screenwriters Rhett reese and paul wernick to fiddle with structure to create the illusion that it completed more than it actually did but almost double a tepid achievements budget are and gone are the incentives for its makers to really try. Uh, that paragraph just really got to me. Um, and then calling Deadpool to 119 minutes of total fluff. That was just so true. Um, and the wall to wall irony thing really hit it home for me. Why? I don't really seem to like Deadpool at all as a character. Uh, tell me a little bit about writing this review and, um, I mean, I like that you look back and say, my tastes have changed. Um, these things don't really work for me. The audience has grown up.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's especially frustrating because it's something I, in theory I should love. Um, just the I, 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 I have such a soft spot for meta humor mm-hmm. just in any way, shape, or form. Um, so I guess it also kind of irks me to an extent, like, a higher degree when it's used as a crutch um, to just sort of void all criticism and say like well yeah it's it's not it's not original but like you know it's not like we think we're doing anything good yeah, but we're doing something um, <laughs> but I mean I mean as I sat there it was it was fine I just I was, was most of the thing was that I was bored and it, there was just a uh, there, there reaches a point where, you know, it's just a gleeful sense of abandon just turns into just total abandonment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think it really does. I mean, you can't not compare the Deadpool movies to Kick-Ass, but it's the first Kick-Ass. Right. Let's not talk about the second Kick-Ass. Um, but it, it just... They could have done a lot more, and it just didn't. And I don't think that they were necessarily trying. I feel like there was there's a, a sense of complacency in that everyone involved already proved themselves. I mean, Ryan Reynolds basically flexed his muscles to fire the first movie's director, Tim Miller, because he wanted it to stay more comedic, whereas Tim Miller wanted there to be more action. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could tell that Ryan Reynolds probably got pretty cocky about it. He was like, see, it succeeded. I know what I'm doing. Um, I can just keep doing it, yeah. and not Really change anything, and I was like, yeah, i was just kind of showing in the final product.
0: Yeah, and and that's the thing I find a little bit ironic is that Ryan Reynolds, you know, wanted to the comedy to stay so he could still be that winking fourth wall breaking, you know, hero. But then they hire David Leitch, who is one of the directors of John Wick, which for yeah. me was one of the biggest breaths of fresh air into the action genre in, that I'd ever seen. It, it made me want to go back and get into action movies again. And then they come out with Deadpool 2, and watching these sequences, I was like, oh my god. These are so poorly directed, so poorly shot, so poorly choreographed why even hire this guy and i he recently did atomic blonde as well which i didn't love but the action sequences were totally on point and that kept me interested in the film this i was like great i have 15 year old humor and really crappy action sequences set to dolly parton what do i do with that
1: yeah i mean it was also just it was especially bizarre because a lot of it the the scenes were like, you could tell that they were choreographed and staged decently, but the way that they were actually shot and edited, all the the, the cross-cutting and reverse angles were really yeah. disorienting. I couldn't really tell what was happening. And it was especially troublesome because you can tell that those on those on set, they know what they're doing, and they're probably doing a great job, but I can't tell.
0: Yeah, no, there would be no way to tell. Maybe it was just a total hatchet job in the editing room that um – um really tone down those those action sequences to be you know and i born esque, you know when we when we talk about that kind of shaky cam sort of thing just so much as you said so much cutting so much not letting the audience see what's happening and really enjoy it um the way i put it to people was you know they lost sight of what makes a good action scene they should go watch some more you know, Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee knew how to do an action scene. He lets you see what was going on. And uh, yeah. instead of that, they opted for the easy way out would made you which made you think there was a lot going on. But when you pay attention, you, you're totally lost in lost in all the noise. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Matt Sapola, for coming on No Coast Cinema and talking a little bit of criticism um, and talking about Con, all the good stuff. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, You can find him on Twitter. It's at Cipolla Matt. That's C-I-P-O-L-L-A Matt. And uh, you can read all of his reviews over at Film Monthly. And he's also on Letterboxd. If you use Letterboxd, go ahead and follow him. He's got some great lists, got some great reviews that you can read over there as well. Again, thank you so much, Matt. And, uh, you know, we'll see you at the movies. Yeah, thanks. All right, this has been NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush, and we will see you all next week.